Today I'll be reading Justice Sotomayor's dissenting opinion in Trump v. Hawaii, also known as the Muslim travel ban case, in which former President Donald Trump issued Proclamation Number 9645, asserting that it sought to improve the procedures used to screen the citizens of particular countries to determine whether they present public safety threats if permitted to enter the United States. So the proclamation placed entry restrictions on nationals from eight foreign countries whose systems for sharing information about those nationals were deemed inadequate by the former president. There were several questions before the court in this case. First, whether the president had the statutory authority to issue the proclamation to begin with. Also, whether the plaintiff's challenge to such authority was justiciable in federal court. Whether the global injunction barring enforcement of certain parts of the proclamation was impermissibly overbroad. And finally, whether the proclamation violated the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. And now, Justice Sotomayor's 2018 dissenting opinion in Trump v. Hawaii. Justice Sotomayor, with whom Justice Ginsburg joins. Dissenting. The United States of America is a nation built upon the promise of religious liberty. Our founders honored that core promise by embedding the principle of religious neutrality in the First Amendment. The Court's decision today fails to safeguard that fundamental principle. It leaves undisturbed a policy first advertised openly and unequivocally as a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States, because the policy now masquerades behind a facade of national security concerns. But this repackaging does little to cleanse Presidential Proclamation Number 9645 of the appearance of discrimination that the President's words have created. Based on the evidence in the record, a reasonable observer would conclude that the proclamation was motivated by anti-Muslim animus. That alone suffices to show that plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits of their Establishment Clause claim. The majority holds otherwise by ignoring the facts, misconstruing our legal precedent, and turning a blind eye to the pain and suffering the proclamation inflicts upon countless families and individuals, many of whom are United States citizens. Because that troubling result runs contrary to the Constitution and our precedent, I dissent. Part 1 Plaintiffs challenge the proclamation on various grounds, both statutory and constitutional. Ordinarily, when a case can be decided on purely statutory grounds, we strive to follow a prudential rule of avoiding constitutional questions. But that rule of thumb is far from categorical, and it has limited application where, as here, the constitutional question proves far simpler than the statutory one. Whatever the merits of plaintiffs' complex statutory claims, the proclamation must be enjoined for a more fundamental reason, 
it runs afoul of the Establishment Clause's guarantee of religious neutrality. Section A. The Establishment Clause forbids government policies respecting an establishment of religion. The clearest command of the Establishment Clause is that the government cannot favor or disfavor one religion over another. Consistent with that clear command, this Court has long acknowledged that governmental actions that favor one religion inevitably foster the hatred, disrespect, and even contempt of those who hold contrary beliefs. That is so, this Court has held, because such acts send messages to members of minority faiths that they are outsiders, not full members of the political community. To guard against this serious harm, the framers mandated a strict principle of denominational neutrality. When the government acts with the ostensible and predominant purpose of disfavoring a particular religion, it violates that central establishment clause value of official religious neutrality, there being no neutrality when the government's ostensible object is to take sides. To determine whether plaintiffs have proved an establishment clause violation, the court asks whether a reasonable observer would view the government action as enacted for the purpose of disfavoring a religion. In answering that question, this court has generally considered the text of the government policy, its operation, and any available evidence regarding the historical background of the decision under challenge, the specific series of events leading to the enactment or official policy in question, and the legislative or administrative history, including contemporaneous statements made by the decision-maker. At the same time, however, courts must take care not to engage in any judicial psychoanalysis of the drafter's heart of hearts. Although the majority briefly recounts a few of the statements and background events that form the basis of plaintiff's constitutional challenge, that highly abridged account does not tell even half of the story. The full record paints a far more harrowing picture from which a reasonable observer would readily conclude that the proclamation was motivated by hostility and animus toward the Muslim faith. During his presidential campaign, then-candidate Donald Trump pledged that, if elected, he would ban Muslims from entering the United States. Specifically, on December 7, 2015, he issued a formal statement calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. That statement, which remained on his campaign website until May 2017, read in full, Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what is going on. According to Pew Research, among others, there is great hatred toward Americans by large segments of the Muslim population. Most recently, a poll from the Center for Security Policy released data showing 25% of those polled agreed that violence against Americans here in the United States 
is justified as a part of the global jihad. And 51% of those polled agreed that Muslims in America should have the choice of being governed according to Sharia. Sharia authorizes such atrocities as murder against non-believers who won't convert, beheadings, and more unthinkable acts that pose great harm to Americans, especially women. Mr. Trump stated, without looking at the various polling data, it is obvious to anybody the hatred is beyond comprehension. Where this hatred comes from and why, we will have to determine. Until we are able to determine and understand this problem and the dangerous threat it poses, our country cannot be the victims of the horrendous attacks by people that believe only in jihad and have no sense of reason or respect of human life. If I win the election for president, we are going to make America great again. Donald Trump On December 8, 2015, Trump justified his proposal during a television interview by noting that President Franklin D. Roosevelt did the same thing with respect to the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. In January 2016, during a Republican primary debate, Trump was asked whether he wanted to rethink his position on banning Muslims from entering the country. He answered, no. A month later, at a rally in South Carolina, Trump told an apocryphal story about United States General John J. Pershing killing a large group of Muslim insurgents in the Philippines with bullets dipped in pig's blood in the early 1900s. In March 2016, he expressed his belief that Islam hates us. We can't allow people coming into this country who have this hatred of the United States and of people that are not Muslim. That same month, Trump asserted that we're having problems with the Muslims and we're having problems with Muslims coming into the country. He therefore called for surveillance of mosques in the United States blaming terrorist attacks on Muslims' lack of assimilation and their commitment to Sharia law. A day later, he opined that Muslims do not respect us at all and, quote, don't respect a lot of the things that are happening through not only our country, but they don't respect other things, unquote. As Trump's presidential campaign progressed, he began to describe his policy proposal in slightly different terms. In June 2016, for instance, he characterized the policy proposal as a suspension of immigrants from countries where there is a proven history of terrorism. He also described the proposal as rooted in the need to stop importing radical Islamic terrorism to the West through a failed immigration system. Asked in July 2016 whether he was pulling back from his pledged Muslim ban, Trump responded, I actually don't think it's a rollback. In fact, you could say it's an expansion. Then he explained that he used different terminology because people were so upset when he used the word Muslim. A month before the 2016 election, Trump reiterated that his proposed Muslim ban 
had morphed into an extreme vetting from certain areas of the world. Then, on December 21, 2016, President-elect Trump was asked whether he would rethink his previous plans to create a Muslim registry or ban Muslim immigration. He replied, You know my plans. All along, I've proven to be right. On January 27, 2017, one week after taking office, President Trump signed Executive Order No. 13769, entitled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States. As he signed it, President Trump read the title, looked up, and said, We all know what that means. That same day, President Trump explained to the media that under EO1, Christians would be given priority for entry as refugees into the United States. In particular, he bemoaned the fact that in the past, if you were a Muslim refugee from Syria, you could come in, but if you were a Christian, it was almost impossible. Considering that past policy very unfair, President Trump explained that EO1 was designed to help the Christians in Syria, the following day, one of President Trump's key advisors candidly drew the connection between EO1 and the Muslim ban that the president had pledged to implement if elected. According to that advisor, when Donald Trump first announced it, he said, Muslim ban. He called me up, he said, put a commission together, show me the right way to do it legally. On February 3, 2017, the United States District Court for the Western District of Washington enjoined the enforcement of EO1. The Ninth Circuit denied the government's request to stay that injunction. Rather than appeal the Ninth Circuit's decision, the government declined to continue defending EO1 in court and instead announced that the president intended to issue a new executive order to replace EO1. On March 6, 2017, President Trump issued that new executive order, which, like its predecessor, imposed temporary entry and refugee bans. One of the president's senior advisors publicly explained that EO2 would have the same basic policy outcome as EO1 and that any changes would address very technical issues that were brought up by the court. After EO2 was issued, the White House press secretary told reporters that by issuing EO2, President Trump continued to deliver on his most significant campaign promises. That statement was consistent with President Trump's own declaration that, quote, I keep my campaign promises, and our citizens will be very happy when they see the result, unquote. Before EO2 took effect, federal district courts in Hawaii and Maryland enjoined the order's travel and refugee bans. The Fourth and Ninth Circuits upheld those injunctions in substantial part. In June 2017, this court granted the government's petition for certiorari and issued a per curiam opinion, partially staying the district court's injunctions pending further review. In particular, the court allowed EO2's travel ban to take effect 
except as to foreign nationals who have a credible claim of a bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. While litigation over EO2 was ongoing, President Trump repeatedly made statements alluding to a desire to keep Muslims out of the country. For instance, he said at a rally of his supporters that EO2 was just a watered-down version of the first one and had been tailored at the behest of the lawyers. He further added that he would prefer to go back to the first executive order and go all the way and reiterated his belief that it was very hard for Muslims to assimilate into Western culture. During a rally in April 2017, President Trump recited the lyrics to a song called The Snake, a song about a woman who nurses a sick snake back to health, but then is attacked by the snake as a warning about Syrian refugees entering the country. And in June 2017, the president stated on Twitter that the Justice Department had submitted a watered-down, politically correct version of the original travel ban to Supreme Court. The president went on to tweet, People, the lawyers, and the courts can call it whatever they want, but I am calling it what we need and what it is, a travel ban. He added, That's right, we need a travel ban for certain dangerous countries, not some politically correct term that won't help us protect our people. Then on August 17, 2017, President Trump issued yet another tweet about Islam, once more referencing the story about General Pershing's massacre of Muslims in the Philippines. Study what General Pershing did to terrorists when caught. There was no more radical Islamic terror for 35 years. In September 2017, President Trump tweeted that the travel ban into the United States should be far larger, tougher, and more specific, but stupidly, that would not be politically correct. Later that month, on September 24, 2017, President Trump issued presidential proclamation number 9645, which restricts entry of certain nationals from six Muslim-majority countries. On November 29, 2017, President Trump retweeted three anti-Muslim videos entitled Muslim Destroys a Statue of Virgin Mary, Islamist Mob Pushes Teenage Boy Off Roof and Beats Him to Death, and Muslim Migrant Beats Up Dutch Boy on Crutches. Those videos were initially tweeted by a British political party whose mission is to oppose all alien and destructive political or religious doctrines, including Islam. When asked about these videos, the White House Deputy Press Secretary connected them to the proclamation, responding that the president has been talking about these security issues for years now, from the campaign trail to the White House, and has addressed these issues with the travel order that he issued earlier this year and the companion proclamation. 2. As the majority correctly notes, 
the issue before us is not whether to denounce these offensive statements. Rather, the dispositive and narrow question here is whether a reasonable observer, presented with all openly available data, the text and historical context of the proclamation, and the specific sequence of events leading to it, would conclude that the primary purpose of the proclamation is to disfavor Islam and its adherents by excluding them from the country? The answer is unquestionably yes. Taking all the relevant evidence together, a reasonable observer would conclude that the proclamation was driven primarily by anti-Muslim animus rather than by the government's asserted national security justifications. Even before being sworn into office, then-candidate Trump stated that Islam hates us, warned that we're having problems with the Muslims and we're having problems with Muslims coming into the country, promised to enact a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States, and instructed one of his advisors to find a legal way to enact a Muslim ban. The president continued to make similar statements well after his inauguration, as detailed above. Moreover, despite several opportunities to do so, President Trump has never disavowed any of his prior statements about Islam. Instead, he has continued to make remarks that a reasonable observer would view as an unrelenting attack on the Muslim religion and its followers. Given President Trump's failure to correct the reasonable perception of his apparent hostility toward the Islamic faith, it is unsurprising that the president's lawyers have, at every step in the lower courts, failed in their attempts to launder the proclamation of its discriminatory taint. Notably, the court recently found less pervasive official expressions of hostility and the failure to disavow them to be constitutionally significant. It should find the same here. Ultimately, what began as a policy explicitly calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States has since morphed into a proclamation putatively based on national security concerns. But this new window dressing cannot conceal an unassailable fact. The words of the president and his advisors create the strong perception that the proclamation is contaminated by impermissible discriminatory animus against Islam and its followers. We've come to the end of part one of this opinion. But don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.